Hello, everyone, and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to What Would the Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me down south is my good friend, Ben. How's it going down there? It's really good. Thank you, mate. Here I am again. I'm not as far down south as our next guest, I don't think. I don't know. We'll have to get a globe out or something. So check out Longitude and Latitude. This is why people tune in for the Latitude and Longitude conversations, isn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> but don't get me started <laughs> no. about making navigation wheels. We've got a returning guest this time. I'm very pleased to have Sir David Larkin. How's it going, David? Oh, great. Thanks for having me back. And uh, yeah, happy to be here. Well, we thought in about time because part of the press is sixth edition Pendragon starter set. And uh, no doubt, following on from that, there will be a bunch of other stuff for Pendragon. Now a torrent coming our way, I expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I normally do is race off and talk about details and people might be lost as to what we're actually talking about. So I'm going to take a step of this time. I'm going to learn from previous mistakes uh, and get you to pitch it. If, if people haven't heard of King Arthur Pendragon, what would be your elevator pitch for the game? What do you do? What's your core activity? Well, the core activity is that you all play knights during the time of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and you are seeking glory. Glory is a, a game mechanic, as well as kind of an in-game concept, and and you earn glory. You can only earn glory, can't lose it, by, uh, you know, doing things that knights do. You, you joust other knights, you slay uh, giants and lions in the woods. You uh, go on quests. You interact with strange hermits and uh, devious magicians and all that wonderful stuff from the fairy tales and the legends of King Arthur. And that's my elevator pitch. Yeah, I think very well done. And it's good. It's interesting, in fact, that we've got a starter set because to old hands like myself or Ben, like Pendragon's a game we've played for, you know, we're measuring decades, much like campaigns of Pendragon are measured. Mm. Um, but there will, there will be people to, to whom this is new. So it's good to have a, a you know a, a, a box set, again, to hark back to the good old days. We've got, you know, it's a proper box set. It comes with a set of dice in it. There's all kinds of, like, character folios and sheets and rules bits and battle cards. It's a, it's a cornucopia of delights, if I may say so. <laughs> when, when you're designing something like this, you've got to think about, presumably, old hands who played the game lots before, also want from a starter set though to, to entice new people in mm-hmm. uh, you're probably trying to get as much good stuff in a, in a starter set as you can to kind of like really capture what the game's about so how did you go about balancing you know how much to think about keeping the old hands comfy how much you had to go back to absolute basics for people who might never have played a role-playing game before for example and and what sort of middle ground or balancing did you have to do for that oh yeah it was uh it was a fun challenge and of course i was able to stand on the shoulders of my uh, Chaosium colleagues, uh, you know, Mike Mason and uh, Jason Durrell and, and, and co, you know, group mm-hmm. effort for sure, doing Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest starter sets, respectively. They, they sort of laid down the template that I was able to go from taking uh, Greg Stafford, the, the game's creator, you know, he had some sort of sketches, I guess you could say. Uh, I don't think it was even, he was even necessarily thinking in terms of a box set, but he had like a 30-page Pendragon uh, sort of treatment. And he had this thing he called the Sword Campaign that had, you know, five plus adventures that were in various stages of completion at the time of his passing uh, five years ago. So that was sort of the core that I was able to then build the starter set 
off of because I knew that, oh, hey, here's this sword campaign. Nobody's seen that. So, you know, speaking of old hands, like this will be some new scenarios from the pen of Greg Stafford. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, the other two starter sets come with these solo quests, kind of tutorials that are meant to teach you the mechanics, teach you the setting. So we didn't have anything there. But since I grew up on, you know, adventure game books and choose your own adventure books, I jumped at the chance to write that, uh, which was tremendous fun. So that was the most sort of original writing that I did for the starter set. And the rest was mostly just taking Greg's stuff and piecing it together and then smoothing it out. Excellent. And I noticed that there's not, there's not just like an adventure, because I think one of the, the key uh, attractors of Pedrogan for a lot of people is the fact that it is played over a number of years. And in fact, a scenario is generally like the adventuring bit of one year. And then the next time your characters come back for another session, it might be a year later, for example. Mm-hmm. And you've got a winter phase of things that happen in between and you, your character's life moves on. So the, the adventures you include in the book is kind of like a, a few, not little ones, but a, a few tutorial ones. And it, it gives you immediately in the starter set some kind of idea about the episodic play. How, how did you sort of like determine how far to go with that? Do you know what I mean? Like, because it could mm. be easy to kind of like accelerate through quite a few years. Uh, you know, equally, you might want to be a bit tentative and say, well, I don't want to jump forward too much because it might be too much for people. Like, is it just you took whatever you had from Greg or did you kind of like do a bit of a, a play test around that and work out what's the best? Yeah, well, that was definitely a very important design goal was not just to include uh, three or four whatever uh, random scenarios. You know, I, I, I very much wanted it to be a narrative campaign so that people could see even in an abbreviated form oh, this is how you're expected to play the game. Like you said, one scenario per game year, and then you do a winter phase, and then you do you know, the next year. And it doesn't get in very deep because that's outside the scope of just three three game years with starting household nights, right? Um, so we knew we didn't want to go too far in that direction. But it really was, yeah, like you say, kind of trying to find a balance. Three, obviously, had to be the minimum because even just two, it's like, eh, you know, it's not really giving you the full experience there. Um, for a while, we were working with five. We we thought we could do five, but page count wise, just, you know, it was a choice between do we present the scenarios more sort of fully fleshed out or do we have them as little sketches and we could do five sketches or three more fleshed out scenarios. And so in the end, we went with the three more fleshed out scenarios because it is, it's a starter set, you know, and, yeah. and like you say, somebody who maybe he's only ever watched Critical Role and wants to play a role-playing game and sees this cool, you know, Arthurian fantasy game, picks it up. Um, and and the text is very much, uh, you know, a lot of it's Greg and, and it, he wrote it, he was writing the sword campaign with this idea of it being introductory. And so he wrote, he wrote it very much in this kind of, here's what's going on. This is why this is happening. This is why King Lod is giving this speech and then you're going to ask the players how they react rather than letting the players interrupt the king while he's talking. And, you know, like <laughs> this is why this might be a little different from what you're used to if you do play other RPGs, you know. Yeah. Um, so the good news is that we we had developed those five scenarios. So we ended up with two two more fully developed scenarios that are actually going to go into the next scenario pack, I guess you could call it, which is the revised edition of the Grey Knight. So the Grey Knight's actually going to be three scenarios in one. 
Excellent. And like one of my favorite things from the the old Pendragon as it is now, now I've got a new edition, I guess, is the, the those kind of like um I want to call them splat books. Mm. But things like the, there's the Cambrian campaign, there's the Spectre King, there's you know, a, a bunch of them like that. And they had sort of like some adventure seeds, they had some fully fleshed out things like you said, they have some like really meaty scenarios and then maybe some smaller ones and things like that, and talking about different areas of the mm-hmm. the world and that sort of thing. So is that is that a model that you might follow? I, I know that in the works you've kind of got the great pendragon campaign that you might want to talk about as well but mm. i do like the idea of like scenario books because i think it can be quite difficult for new people to work out what you do as nice if you know what i mean because there's it's not like playing dnd is it? it's a different experience yeah exactly yeah and and i mean great minds think alike because that is absolutely well i mean that's how i got into the game when i you know when i got into pendragon it was like you say you had all these books with just packed with scenarios. And so I, I sort of rated Pendragon on par with Call of Cthulhu in terms of like, oh, this is a game with like tons of scenarios that I can pick from because I'm a lazy GM and I and I also I don't know how to run Pendragon, right? So I'm going to just grab some pre-published scenarios and, and use those. And, you know, the, the great Pendragon campaign, which just very briefly for folks who don't know, is 500 plus pages and it covers 80 years of the Arthurian saga, and, and you could run the whole thing, or you could run it in bits and pieces. Like that was published almost 20 years ago now, which is wild. But you know, it's it's an amazing work of game design, Arthurian scholarship. I also feel like it kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room as far as like producing more scenarios, because it was kind of like, what more do you need? You have the Great Pendragon campaign. So I definitely want to see the game get back to um, also providing these more bite-sized options for folks. And um, actually, I'll just mention that very imminently, I don't have a date yet, but it's it's very imminent, we will be launching the Companions of Arthur content portal, which is the sort of the equivalent of the Miskatonic repository, Johnstown Compendium, DMs Guild, whatever you want to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this will be for folks who want to write content for Pendragon. And initially, it's going to be scenarios. We have a, a few few folks from the development team who have written scenarios that are specifically keyed to the starter set. So if you have the starter set, you go through the store, sword campaign, you're looking for some more scenarios, you can go on Companions of Arthur once it's up and running and find more, more there. So yeah, right out the gate, we want to offer lots of you know, bite-sized scenario options for folks. I was curious as to what you might think the touchstones are for Arthurian gaming in the 21st century. As a fairly old man of some vintage myself, I could say that, you know, my entire, I was steeped in the sword in the stone and Excalibur. But these Mm -hmm. these are now 50-year-old movies. I know. Is it, if you are, I don't know, if you're in your early 20s and you're you're branching out from your critical role endeavours and looking for new things to do and there's a brand new starter set on there, up on the shelf, what are we thinking these days? Surely it's not the Guy Ritchie movie, is it? Is it perhaps a, you know, a <laughs> Game of Thrones that had plenty of knightly orders in it, didn't it? And that kind of thing. I mean, what do you do when you sit down with, a, as I assume you must have done during Plato, sit down with a group who are whose knowledge of Arthur is maybe not, not the same as perhaps your knowledge of Arthur? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And and yeah, I did. I, I like to run Pendragon for folks who don't know a whole lot about mm. Arthur because it's easier to surprise them for one thing. Um, but also it's 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 fun to take them on that journey of, of sort of uh, learning the tropes, if you will, of this genre and, and how 
uh, interesting that can be and what kind of gameplay that that drives. But uh, yeah, as far as media touchstones, I think you I think you got it with Game Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, that comes up a lot. Folks reference that a lot. And um, of course, obviously, the Green Knight came out a couple oh, of yeah. years ago. Yeah, of course, and yeah. Not a not a box office blockbuster by any means. But if folks haven't seen it, I, I you know would definitely refer them to it because I thought it did a really good job. You know, people quibble about how it depicts Gawain and you know how it how faithful it is to the source material, and that's that's fair. That you know you can have a debate about that. But I thought it really did. There were there were certain parts of the movie that I'm like, this is straight out of a Pendragon game. Like <laughs> this is exactly the sort of thing that I would expect in one of my games, you know. So that would be another touchstone for sure. But yeah, kind of kind of still waiting on a really good like the successor to Excalibur in a way. You know, we're we're waiting for the next Boy King to come along and and draw the sword from the stone. I think Green King's a good shout actually, because that really starts off with like you know everybody's sat around it. All having a nice time, and then some weird night bursts in and make some kind of challenge and kill someone, and then storms off, and you've got a year to sort something out. It's like, yeah, that's that's how you want your Pendragon campaign to start. I think <laughs> it's like you're all just having a perfectly nice time, and some fairy night turns up and ruins it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's you know it's it's gritty and it's earthy and it's lusty and you know it's got all those great things that uh, a good Pendragon game has. I mean, as a relative noob to the to the setting, as we were just discussing, this may sound like a silly question. In Pendragon, do you get to play Knights of the Round Table? Oh, that's not a silly question. Um, so yes, you do. Cool. You can now not not out of the starter set, <laughs> right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, nowhere to go after that, would there? Really, <laughs> nowhere to go. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that it's 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 what's called what the game calls an aspiration, and um, or an I you know there's aspirations and ideals. They're two sides of the same coin. So, um, so it's an ideal, but yeah, you can, you can aspire to be a knight of the round table. You can aspire to, uh, be a great baron, a landholder, you know, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, you can also just aspire to be a chivalrous knight or a knight who is very like a paragon of your religion or a romantic knight. And you can, you can try to, you know, get as many of those as you can. I had a, a player in my, uh, I, I ran a, a one-year playtest uh, a couple of years ago of uh, the, what's going to be the first volume of the revised Great Pendragon campaign, and he managed to get that get the uh, trifecta of Round Table, Chivalrous, and Religious Knight by the uh, <laughs> by the end of his career, basically. And that's the thing is that oftentimes you'll find that uh, achieving the Round Table can be a logical point for you to retire that character you don't have to you know and and you can certainly play the game at that level for a good while afterwards but you know this is a game that is set up that you can you can have a character retire and then you can bring in that character's sibling or cousin or offspring whoever you know is ready to take their place but uh but yeah you know you you do have to earn your place at the round table for sure and so players always feel big sense of accomplishment when they do that needless to say yeah i think it's um it's probably worth mentioning actually that there is differentiation because some well, not pushback but like the, the query i most often get when i talk about pendragon or i think people are thinking about signing up for it at a convention when i run it is like but you're mm. all knights aren't you and like that's the end of the conversation like you're all i guess they're thinking the heads like you're all paladins or it'd be like playing yeah. the same class uh, and one of the key things that can make your knights different is the trait system 
which for our listeners at home is a set of key pairs. So it might be valorous and cowardly, energetic and lazy, chase and lustful, that sort of thing. So they're opposite sides of a coin for each of them, and they both add up to 20. So if one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa. And it, it works in two ways. So one, it gives you kind of an indication of how your knight would act. So if you've got a particularly energetic knight, then you'd be expected to be up keeping watch and uh, taking part in all kinds of races or you know, just generally be up and about. Whereas if you've got a, a more lazy night, you'd expect to be perhaps trying to avoid duties or maybe falling asleep mm-hmm. while the Spectre King sneak into the castle or something. Those work on the other way as well, that the more you act a certain way, so if you're always suspicious, if you're you're not always thinking, well, I don't trust this Lord or I don't, you know, what what's the real plan behind what this guy, this old hermit's asked us to do, then your suspicious trait will go up and therefore it was more likely that your character will be suspicious in future, whether you want to or not almost, because you have to roll sometimes against those traits. So I think that's the first point of, of key note I've got is that uh, your personality, how you play your character will start to reflect in the game mechanics that that you interact with. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's kind of a conversation actually. Uh, one of the great things about Pendragon is that the way you play your character will shape that night but also the night can shape the way you play the character so if you like you said if you have a very high uh lazy let's just say even if you wanted your night to be more energetic or on the spot like uh you know i'll often call for energetic roles if there's like a night attack of nighttime not k-n-i-g-h-g uh (laughs) if there's an attack at night by some bandits or something you know okay well everyone who's asleep roll energetic to jump out of bed you know and you got that lazy night he's going to be sleeping through the first few rounds of combat maybe and that's not something you as the player would want to do right but the the knight's telling you the character is telling you no no this is what we're going to do and you know that that's kind of a shift that's more of a shift i find for people once they buy in on on, at least on campaign play it's not so much like because you know even in a convention game you know it just takes one session to see oh we might all be knights but we're all very different people and we're all acting quite differently i see that's fun but in the campaign play you start to see like i had a player who really wanted to have a chivalrous knight and he was trying to get those chivalrous traits up but his other non-chivalrous traits kept winning on those on those opposed roles you know and so in 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 the clutch in the key moments when he had to be forgiving or he had to be valorous you know he would be vengeful or cowardly instead and first the player was kind of like oh, i don't know but then he kind of just like let it go and he's like well let's just see where this goes he actually ended up with a very complex multi-layered character who by the time he was sort of approaching that sort of uh retirement age you know knights get towards he he had a lot of regrets but he also had a lot of triumphs and you know his his life didn't turn out the way he thought it was going to and i mean i think we can all kind of relate to that you know i feel seen as the kids say (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) can we talk about um the supernatural just for a second if that's okay it's um one of the um one of the one of the touchstones of of uh, Pendragon is that it could look on the outside like a historical game, and and history for, for some people might make you think of dry lessons at school and whatever. Um, Pendragon is not like that at all, is it? Because obviously it's a game. I say obviously, maybe it's not obviously a game about myth and about legend and about the supernatural as well. But I do remember playing Pendragon and being quite surprised to see that, and I shouldn't have been surprised at all, but to see that there were ghosts and dragons and and the whole fairy thing. And, and and of course it's like that, but but again you start off feeling you're like some kind of plate mail plaid cowboy 
and that it's all kind of historical and you're cantering along in the forest a lot. But it, it can get weird, can't it, in Pendragon? Oh, yeah, definitely. It can get very weird. And, um, you know, that that is kind of these the internal tension of the game, which is very, uh, you know, intentional, uh, that, you know, it is a grounded game. Some folks do forget that it's it's a fantasy game at the end of the day and and so they, they'd be like well that's not really how inheritance laws worked in 13th century yeah. england or whatever <laughs> you know and it's like yeah well this is a game that's set in the fit in the sixth century as imagined by 13th century troubadours as reinterpreted by a 15th century mercenary knight as then reinterpreted by another 500 years of authors so there's nothing and creators, you know, there, there's nothing um, strictly historical about this game. It is it is a game that that grounds itself in a sort of verisimilitude, right? And that's where you start from. So you have these knights in armor and there's these sort of equivalencies to medieval uh, history and society and so forth. But then, yeah, like you say, out of out of nowhere, here comes this fairy knight who's going to come, you know, disrupt your Christmas feast. Or uh, you hear... You hear about this uh, poor heiress whose lands are being ravaged by a giant and you go up there and it is, lo and behold, an actual 20 foot tall giant with uprooted tree for a club and you have to go fight it and uh, good luck to you. And there's there's anachronisms that were in the medieval romances like lions in Britain because lions are cool, you know, and that sort of thing, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's the original rule of cool. It's up to each individual Pendragon GM how, how much they want to balance that Pendragon's very much like RuneQuest and Glorantha, you know, your Pendragon will vary. So some some GMs like to focus more on the knight side of things and, you know, tournaments and and politicking and that sort of Game of Thrones uh, sort of thing. I, that's another way that Game of Thrones is a good touchstone, though, right? Because it's a very grounded mm, yes. fantasy setting. And then all of a sudden you've got a dragon showing up and, you know, torching yeah. the whole castle or whatever right and some gms you know really want to just go all in on the on the magic and the fairies and the enchantments and you know there's no wrong way to do it and and the game ultimately gives you everything you need to go whichever way you want really yeah and there's, there's a bunch of things i remember from some of the adventures but like the there are myths in britain as well that aren't necessarily arthurian that that where the way around the, the lampton worm and and stories like that which yeah. are just you know you can you can take folk tales from wherever you are, I, I'm thinking of Freely's game Vason, where they they you know, weave that in as a kind of like an 18th, 19th century kind of mystery thing. But there's no reason why you couldn't run a Pendragon campaign in a different European country and take their fifths, myths and folklore and turn them into quite interesting scenarios, right? So it's it's a, it's a dial you can turn up and down as you want, as, as you say. But exactly, yeah. The, there's there's a, a spin-off game called Paladin that's that does just that, where it's it's set in the uh, myth cycle of Charlemagne and the and the paladins you know so and it's much more kind of like yeah sort of french and northern italian um um, history and myth cycles uh, rather than british although morgan lefay shows up in that one too because she shows up in their myths she's a cool character and why wouldn't you have her why why not yeah talking of uh characters and historical accuracy something that's uh, a welcome sight in fact is that in the star set there's some beautiful color folded portfolios for characters a good proportion of them are female characters called uh, a dame rather than a sir. That's healthy to see. So, you know, well done on that. I'll give you some props, first of all. I'm sure you don't need my approval, but you've got it anyway. Appreciate it. But yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's probably another thing that, that you may have taken a look at doing a new edition of Pendragon is when it was written, it was obviously 
of its time and no slight against Greg or any of the other people involved but you know circa 1980 the, the language people used and mm-hmm. how how history was viewed and things like that were all slightly different than you know now 40 years later that sort of thing so how, how much of that have you had to sort of like take on board and change I mean there's not a massive amount to change but presumably hidden away in text there can be some like probably like less favorable phrases that we might not use these days or there's just a different approach you might want to take and and probably additionally to that is like how much do you kind of try and include historical accuracy for fun without making it a playground for people who want to be a-holes about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah what i like to say is that women knights have been in the game since first edition you know you can actually go back and and find a little sidebar in first edition saying yeah you know you can play a woman knight no problem really what we've done with sixth edition is just kind of foreground that a, a, a bit more so for instance you didn't get a lot of art like you say you know you didn't get a lot of art showing women knights even though the text said here's how you would handle a woman knight in the game where's the art oh all the knights are men so changing that up a little bit um and you know just kind of making that a little more obvious for folks uh some of the language rather than uh and this is just kind of the chaos in house style switching from he as the generic pronoun to they instead of talking about the sun we would talk about the air stuff like that right yeah. just kind of degendering it as much as possible there the thing of it, the thing of it though is that you know in the default setting and and in the, the core rule book there's a you know, nice chunky section that talks about a, you know, again, like your Pendragon will vary. If you want a ratio of 50-50 men, women, knights, go for it. The the default assumption in terms of how we make NPCs and write the setting is one in 20 uh, knights or women. You know, it's still, it's still a minority, a very small minority, right? But that's kind of the point because, because what, what Greg wanted to do is present a mostly historically accurate setting in terms of it being this you know there, there's a little essay he wrote for the core rule book that just says like this is a brutal world this is a harsh world and the whole point of arthur and the round table is that they're going to come along and they're going to try and make the world better and you're going to be a part of that and that's that's what it's about you know that that's for the 21st century pendragon game i mean i think that's really like Again, you know, kind of a selling point if someone, you know, brings that up in particular, you know, like, why would I want to play in a, in a setting like that? It's like, well, because you, this is not actual history and you have the agency to help make the world a better place. Now, we all know how it turns out eventually, you know, but that's part of the, it's part of the tragedy of the story. The story is also a tragedy. So, but if you're, if you're playing in sort of that golden age of Arthur, you know, you can really be that questing knight and try to, try to bring some more justice to the world and other than that, we just sort of dialed things down a little bit. Like actual medieval inheritance law said, I think a woman had to be three times widowed before she had any kind of legal agency to choose who she wanted to marry or any of that sort of thing. And we just, we took that down to one time. So, you know, a lady, a noble woman is still somewhat at the whim of her Lord or her father or whoever for that first marriage. But if that, you know, marriage uh, fails due to widowhood or whatever, she can then choose to marry again, choose not to marry again, you know, whatever she wants to do. So it was finding a balance for sure, because we didn't want to certainly present some kind of utopia because that sort of robs the story of its power yeah. and the giving the players a, a chance to actually have some agency there as well. Because the whole point is like your, your player knights are taking play, you know, they're, they're, they're telling a new version of the Arthurian legend themselves, you know, and they just happen to be the central character. 
So for the stories that get told in Pendragon, and I and I suppose this this builds on the point that that you and Gaz were just talking about. What's the playstyle like as far as um, relationships and romance um, and marriages and ancestry? That I mean, that seems to me to be a big selling point for Pendragon that you wouldn't get in your typical Dungeons and Dragons adventure. And what does that actually look like from you know from a mechanical perspective, from a storytelling perspective? A players down with like you know um, having romances with each other. I don't want to, don't need to get two lines and veilsy about it. Yeah, the idea of the idea of two characters being even married, or brother and sister even, in a in your, again your typical D and D group, would would elicit some frowny faces and some confusion at best. I think. Sure. Yeah, that's that's uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, Pendragon. Well, you know, we've already mentioned there's a chaste and lustful trait trait pair, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, Pendragon acknowledges romance. It acknowledges. Uh, lust it acknowledges uh love in all its different forms uh because that's a big driver of the stories mm. you know i mean i mean arthur himself is the product of uncontrolled lust so that 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 ruined a kingdom it has to be in there and my experience personally you know it's purely anecdotal but i've i've run a lot of pendragon for a lot of people is that folks love it they don't tend to have romances between themselves or between each other i mean Although I know some groups, if a knight marries a, a noblewoman, can roll up the noblewoman as a character, and then someone else will take her as the secondary character that they could then play from time to time in, in lieu of their knight, right? Nice. And yeah. so you're sort of playing, playing a spouse, you know, which, which is a fun way to do an NPC, because otherwise you just tend to be like, yes, my spouse agrees with me on everything and completely supports everything I do and is perfectly happy with everything, you know. <laughs> That's when you know it's a fantasy game. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but also, I mean, yeah, just mechanically, speaking of earning glory, marrying well is a great way to earn glory. Uh, the more famous the person you marry, the more glory you get. Romance. Courtly love is a thing that comes in in Pendragon reality stream. It's Queen Guinevere who develops it. Like it's her invention and she's sort of the queen of romance. And there's like the Queen's Knights, which is an organization you can join and fight on the Queen's behalf. And people love doing that. And so courtly love, you know, that's going to go on quests for your beloved. You're going to wear their favor on your arm when you're in the tournament, that sort of thing. And it's a great way for both parties to earn glory there as well. So yeah, I mean, it's, that's one of the great things about the game is that by dangling glory in front of the players, you can incentivize pretty much anything and they'll go along with it. It's, it's probably worth noting that glory really is your XP, isn't it as well? Because mm-hmm. you, you get some character advancement for the passage of years, but there's like, sort of almost rule-breaking advances you can get by having glory. Like your glory point, you can spend on mm-hmm. a lot more things than you could otherwise. So um, we've mentioned getting glory, and it's not just in and of itself. It's actually like mechanically, that's like kind of your your XP, your character reward that makes you a more powerful, better, or whatever type of knight you want to be by sticking points in things, basically. Yeah, it lets you pull rank at court and uh, do all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, yeah lovely stuff. Yeah, I guess... One of the things I like to do with my my nights when I run them at conventions, which I do quite a lot, is I have a, a stock set, but they've all got one trait, which is on the wrong side. So there is a lazy knight, for example, and mm. a lustful one, and an indulgent one, and whatever. So they've all got a button that you can press that causes mischief, 
Uh, and I think probably something we haven't mentioned with Pendragon, it's it's a little bit like uh, Legend of the Five Rings and other games like that, in that there's an expected way to behave. So Knights are supposed to be defenders of the weak, they're supposed yeah. to adhere to chivalry, they're supposed to do all these other things that you've got. And part of the fun of the game is trying to solve problems while maintaining the social mores and expectations of a knight, right? So that's why having a particularly negative and inverted commerce trait can be interesting because uh, you might be at court and the Lord's wife starts trying to seduce you or something like that. And if you've got a particularly lustful knight, then that could lead to all kinds of problems. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe you meet it because you're arranging a treaty and there's going to be no more border wars when this all works out beautifully. And then you look over at Sir Ivan and he's well in his cups and dancing with the queen again and that kind of thing. But I, w- I would say that's probably something worth flagging. I don't know how you do it in your games that you run, David, but uh, for me, it's probably worth saying that there's getting players used to the idea of player knowledge and character knowledge, which most people do for most games. But I think it's particularly mm-hmm. important in Bear Dragon to say, you know that the queen's lying through her teeth and doing this for the various reasons, but your knight probably doesn't. What have you got? Oh, you've got trusting 19. Whilst it seems perfectly reasonable to join that sort of thing. And there's that kind of interplay, isn't there, where you uh, almost like the TV audience know what's going on, but the character in the show doesn't know what's happening. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. Or when you're reading a book and you can see the path of doom that this character is embarked upon and you're just like, ooh, let's see how this turns out. So again, you have to have this almost sort of very light touch with the way you run your characters in, in Pendragon because they're kind of going to do things. I mean, I, I like to say that one of the the central themes of Arthurian legends is characters doing things against their better judgment. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it comes up again and again. It also segues nicely into passions, which is, of course, the other sort of, you know, big mechanic, uh, which are feelings, beliefs, or, you know, just your character's core identities that they can use to then sort of power up if you will like you know you might have your your homage to your lord and your lord is is in danger in a battle and so you would roll that passion to give yourself a a nice chunky bonus on your sword skill so that you can leap to his defense and kill the dastard who's about to finish him off but you you know you also have passions like hate so you might really hate a particular person or even a, a group of people and it's just it's handy in battle when you're fighting them but not so much when you're trying to yeah like work out some kind of diplomatic arrangement or convince this person to let them marry the heiress that they're legally responsible for what you know what have you and then you've got honor which is sort of a thing on its own it's a passion technically uh but it's also like what you're what you're saying in terms of like a guide for people in terms of what's what's success, acceptable hospitality is another passion so it functions very similarly to that where it's sort of like oh you want to attack this this guy in his hall Mm-mm. if you if you want to lose like three points of hospitality instantaneously then yeah go for it you know but honor really that is one that fluctuates a lot and that can go up it can go down mostly it can go down because there's all kinds of honor violations that you know like like one i i love to point out to players who might be coming in with a modern sensibility is that you can lose honor for doing manual labor. You can lose honor for engaging in uh, like what we might call like capitalist behavior of like trying to use money to make more money, you know, that kind of thing, right? Like, like knights don't do that. You get your money from your Lord or the land. You don't, and you certainly don't go out and chop down a tree. That's what you're peasants are for that's what you get your your squire to go do for you you know you don't do that so 
uh, yeah, honor is a great, a great teaching tool in that sense, because if you lose too much honor, guess what? You lose your knighthood. You are cast out of the, uh, of the clubhouse basically. And that's the end of your character. It's probably worth mentioning because as you mentioned, they're one of my favorite bits of Pendragon is having a squire. So all, all characters were at one point squires and became knighted and now they're knights, but they are training another young lad for, or, or young ladies, it may be in this case, to become nice eventually. But but for now, they're doing all the manual labor. They're the ones sticking chairmail in a barrel of sand and rolling it up and down to get it clean and say, chopping down wood for the fire and doing all the other stuff. But that's it's, it's a great way of cutting through some of the stuff that some players do from d in terms of, like say, penny penny pinching or, you know, uh, oh, have we got enough mm-hmm. rope or things like that. It's, instead of doing all that, when it becomes important in the story, you can just say, well, make a squire roll. And you roll to see whether your squire remembered to pack it or has done it properly or or whatever it might be. And that I think some players struggle a little bit at first to kind of like let go of that. They want to make sure they've covered everything off and they've got everything they need and you know want to pre-plan everything. But once you kind of roll with it a bit, that it's, it's not your fault that you don't have any rope. It's just that it's your first the squire got drunk last night and forgot to pack it. And it's like it's on the tavern table or something, that kind of thing. And it does become a fun a fun part of it, and uh, I think the the last time I ran at the crack and something that the the players really liked was um, sort of my interpretation of squires because it gives you some agency as GM to inject bits of story or give yeah. have a narrative on what the yeah. knights are doing. So when they are making mistakes or doing being unknightly, you can have a little sidebar and talk as, as squires between themselves about I can't believe Sir Ivan <laughs> did that. What's he doing over there with the queen? And did you say that? And uh, you, you you can kind of. <laughs> Uh, do that thing, and as you mentioned, the secondary characters. Another one I, I, I've done sometimes is get the other knights when they're not on a scene to play the squire, mm-hmm. and you know that kind of yeah. stuff. So that, I think it's just a really, it's a really handy mechanic that's probably sometimes overlooked. It's generally just used sometimes as someone to go and get your sword for you when you drop it in a fight. But actually, there's quite a lot of story you can inject by having these secondary characters following your knights around. I think absolutely. Yeah, it's it's uh, that was one of the things that jumped out at me when I first got into the game as well. And uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty unique, I think, in RPGs. And if not the squire, then the horse becomes a central character. Oh yeah, um, you know, in, in the in the forthcoming core rules, there's a whole chapter on horses, including like tables for rolling up their their markings and their you know their traits. You know, like maybe this horse is a little bit of a biter, or maybe uh, you know maybe they're they're stubborn or whatever. And then you can pay extra if you want, you know, a horse of a particular color. Okay. So like a white, the white horse is the priceless one, right? That's the one that's ridden by Kings. And if you're, if you're gifted a white horse, you know, and uh, I was, I loved it in, in play tests. I mean, players, they were accumulating some, some wealth in their treasuries because they had inherited some land. They had married well, they had like Mm. stacks and stacks of wealth and they were blowing all of it to get like the best horse in the county, you know, and, and, and then, <laughs> and then he, one of them got eaten by a giant serpent. And that was very sad. You know? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, those sort of things are you like, you level up though. Aren't you? I guess if you, if you used to play in Dungeons and Dragons or something, you mm. might get a plus two sword or something like that. But in Pendragon, like as time goes on, you can get slightly better armor or you get a, an Andalusian charger or a Destrier rather than, a regular charger or something like that. So it's there's a little bit of having bling. Although we say like knights shouldn't care about money, like they do care about having the best horse or you know a really good set of armor or something. Yeah, they don't care about money. They do, they do care about looking good. <laughs> yeah. And you know there's <laughs> there's a fashion skill you can roll to kind of you know upgrade your your outfit and 
Yeah. So, I mean, and that actually has an impact. There's a, there's a new mechanic in the full rules called geniality that was originally introduced in the book of feasts. Um, and that's kind of how you measure how other people look at you in addition to your glory. But if you show up at a, at a feast or a, a court presence and, and you're just looking really good, everyone's going to comment on you and you know, maybe take you a little more seriously and give you the benefit of the doubt, maybe be more agreeable to your ideas, you know, that sort of thing. We have a loyal friend of the show, Pete, old mate of ours, whose ears just pricked up at that very moment when you said that. <laughs> I guarantee he is pulling shelves, pulling books off the shelf now, thinking he can be a good-looking knight. <laughs> Love it. Very true. So just to, to to flick back to the the star set, one of the other things, I guess it's a, it's a sub-mechanic, mm-hmm. which gets some treatment. I imagine the full mm-hmm. rules will be a bit more, but uh, like mass battles and tourneys. It was interesting to see that that's been brought in like really early. Something like it's not necessarily like something you think of uh, in any role playing game, really. That like our Star Trek adventure is going to involve a mass battle, but um, you you know they're in there nice and early as a thing that knights do and something to get involved in. So do you make sure that the individual knights still get uh, mm-hmm. their glory, or not technical game glory, but like their spotlight time, if you will, when you're in the middle of um you know a tournament and there's King Lot and there's like all these other mm-hmm. like famous names and you're your starter night now what would your advice be to gms to kind of give people make the people the place feel special even though they're probably the lowest rungs when you start out in terms of like who's the most important night on the field so um that was that was a big design goal for us with sixth edition was um getting the battle rules oriented in that direction greg was a war gamer as am i but you know he he had the sort of war gamer hmm. side to his designs and i think when he would work on the battle system that side would take over and so he would start thinking about it in terms of the you know the the commanders and the you know sub commanders and the you know the overall army and so yeah we wanted to present a battle system that did focus it pretty much just on the experience of the player knights cuz i mean a medieval battle is just chaos right i mean you're you're not you're not doing any sophisticated tactical maneuvering once everyone comes to grips. You know, you're just looking for the next foe to fight. And I, that's, you know, kind of how the battle system's always been. We just wanted to foreground that even more. And uh, and yeah, so in the starter set, that's pretty much all it is. In the full rules, you know, there is something in there. If you happen to be an army commander at some point in your career, you can approach it on that level. But yeah, really, it, the, the battle system is is concerned with what are you doing as player knights? What are your decisions on the field? So there's postures like, are you going to be reckless? Are you going to be valorous? Are you going to be prudent this turn? And um, and then opportunities will present themselves. So it's like, uh, oh, speaking of King Lot, there he is over there with his retinue. Do we dare charge? We could. We'll probably get minced up, but we can try it. Or there's the enemy banner. Let's go try and take it. Or, ooh, there's a gap in the lines. Let's go raid the baggage train. Stuff like that, you know. And it's a nice balance because the more reckless, the more daring you are on the field, the more chances there are for glory. But the more likely you're going to be sent limping back to the rear area afterwards to possibly miss the rest of the battle because you've been so knocked about. But yeah, it's also an interesting example of how the game, because of its timeline, sort of determine like the where you set the game sort of determines what's going to feature in your game. So by setting the starter set at the beginning of Arthur's reign, when there's a lot of battles, okay, there's going to be a lot of battles. If we had set the starter set in 20 years later during the Pax Arthuriana, it, you know, it would have been tournaments and romance and quests. So it was sort of just uh, a consequence of 
when the sword campaign was set. You know, oh, I guess we're going to have to have some battles. But also, that's what knights do. That's the reason for their existence. So I was glad to be able to foreground that. Like you say, it's not something that you would typically find in a starter set. You know, it's not killing rats in the cellar kind of thing, you know. <laughs> now, um, I'll ask a question now. I mean, you'll probably tell us what, what is in the pipeline mm-hmm. for, for Pendragon as well. But I think previously when we talked, we mentioned there are some other things. I can feel Mike Mason now. He's in the village just down there off me. I can feel him staring at me, saying, why are you asking these questions? <laughs> but you did mention... You did, you did mention that you got um, a samurai treatment, that maybe there could be a Pendragon version that uh, featured mm-hmm. that part of the world mm-hmm. uh, and possibly like Greek myths and things like that. How, how likely is it or how how far are we looking in the future before we get some sort of supplements that mm. maybe switch around where this is based but still using the Pendragon agent? Yeah. Um, I mean, those have just been sitting patiently awaiting their turn, really. You know, it's it's a matter of getting out the, the core game first and then you can look at those. So we'll be rolling out the new edition well into next year in various different publications. I would love to see one of those maybe published by the end of next year, but that would be at the absolute earliest. And yeah, as soon as I can, basically, because I think they're both great examples of, yeah, what you can do with this core engine. Basically, you know, you can take... Every culture has these great myth cycles or um, just periods in history that are sort of intertwined with myth and legend. And so like the samurai game, for example, is actually set in uh, sort of the late Han era uh, leading up to the um, sort of great uh, civil war between the uh, the major clans that essentially leads to the shogunate eventually developing, right? So And this is a time that has a lot of these sort of legendary figures running around. There's even kind of a Merlin figure at one point, the sort of mysterious sorcerer, and just a lot of really flavorsome elements to add in there. So, and obviously heroic Greece, you know, speaks for itself, right? So I'm hoping to get them out just on their own merits. And then also just if anyone's listening and they feel like pitching me on something, uh, um, you know, from from Chinese or Indian or African or any other kind of myth cycle you can think of, hit me up, you know, <laughs> david.larkins at chaosium.com. My <laughs> inbox is always open. <laughs> well, see, I mean, I have had, you know, in my defense, I've had two or three people asking, like, when's the summer I get out? No. Oh. So it's, it's not just me. There's, there are other people asking about it. Uh, we'll see how successful we are with people putting the money where their mouth is and actually writing something. That might be a <laughs> different stage. There's definitely interest out there, I think. Yeah, I think I, I'm I'm quite interested by this uh, ability to write some DMs Guild style stuff. Actually, I've got a bunch of different scenarios on the on the hard drive. So as soon as that's open, I'll be maybe throwing my hat in the ring. Wonderful. There you are. I've said it publicly now, so I'll have to do it. Yeah, now you're committed. <laughs> Mark Morrison is is heading up the program. So uh, yeah, he's he's I know he's keen. the The main thing is that it, it has to be tied to whatever's been published already, right? So right now it's just mm-hmm. like you can only base your stuff on what's in the starter set. And once the core books come out, you know, it'll open things up a lot more. So, yeah, yeah, it'll be just kind of a, a question of like, you know, when you want to when you want to throw your hat in, as you say. OK, that's, that's good. Now. Thanks, David. That's very, very nice of you. So in terms of actual timeline, do we know when the, the full book will be out or when the Grey Knights will be out, that sort of thing? Have you got uh, estimates on those yet? So the Knight's Handbook, which is the the core rules. Layout's done on that and uh, should be heading to the printer uh, pretty soon here with uh, lead times being what they are. 
maybe end of the year, if not end of year, then January. Uh, I would I would imagine Grey Knight is going to be right behind it. That's basically uh, done and going into layout right now. So those are the next two on the horizon that are that are imminent. We also have the Game Master's Handbook and the Noble's Handbook, which are like the the companion volumes to the Knight's Handbook. Game Master's Handbook is you know what you what you might expect. It's got a bestiary. It's got way more detail on the setting. It's got uh, some adventures in it, uh, guides to writing your own adventures, uh, details on you know the County of Salisbury, all that stuff. Noble's Handbook is sort of for those for those folks who love their domain level play. So they want to rule their own uh, little corner of the kingdom. It has all those rules in it: castle building, sieges. There's uh, also a system for expanded family tree generating, if, you know, because some people really like to get into that. And so you can really flesh out your family tree and your second cousin's a herald and your uncle's a monk and, you know, that kind of. And uh, and by popular demand, that also has a system for uh, breeding horses because everybody wants to breed the best war horse. So, <laughs> <laughs> back again, though. Yep. <laughs> and then um, after those are out, uh, well, we're we're going to put out a a campaign kit to go with the GM's book. That's going to have the the screen. It's going to have a way more detail in the Book of Salisbury. It's going to have some random knight and lady generators, all that good stuff. Uh, and then we'll have Knights and Ladies Adventurous, which is uh, expanded character creation options as well as way more details on playing ladies. And then after that, uh, yeah, we'll start to see the new Great Pendragon campaign roll out. And that's going to be split up into three volumes so that you can you can do it in bite-sized chunks or you can buy all three and do do the whole thing. Sounds amazing. So you've alluded then to sort of like supply-side problems. Uh, mm. how, how's it looking? Is it like as an industry-wide? Are, are we struggling really getting stuff printed and shipped and all that kind of stuff? Is it still a bit, of, bit tricky out there? It's a little tricky. It's not as bad as it was. The starter set was trickier because it's a box set and box sets are just harder to do than books. And they can only be done in China for the the cost cost benefit that uh, the company needed. So I know they're looking for other outlets. For book printing, uh, we have a printer in Europe um, who does it. And so that's a lot faster turnaround. So that's why I'm, I'm like, well, you know, uh, it's also getting it into the distribution chain. You know, there's that element too. So there's all these things I've got to learn over the last few years about the logistics of game. <laughs> uh, it's not as simple as just, you know, oh, the book's in layout and it's ready to go. It's like, okay, now you have to wait your turn. You thought you'd be writing about lines and unicorns and instead you're learning about distribution chains. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that, yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and but the good news is it's it's not as bad as it was at least, so. And uh, at the time of recording, Gen Con's about to go off in uh, in the US, as it does every year. Um, KSEM got a big uh, uh, the starter sets there for Gen Con. Is that going to be a big pile of Pendragon for people to chip away at? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're they're coming in ready to ready to sell. And uh, yeah, I'm not obviously I'm not there, but I've seen some photos, and they've got they've got like um, one of the uh, kiosks with the programs has a big Chaosium. A sign on it and it's got call of cthulhu runequest and pendragon and it's a little trifecta so it's very nice to see yeah i've just sent some stuff on the socials there's a massive uh cube hanging from the ceiling with chaos written all over it. so uh yeah if, if you're looking for the store Jenkin, it should be quite hard just look up <laughs> just look <laughs> up <laughs> there's a film reference in there don't we? yeah right <laughs> so, so one of the questions we, we asked people i don't know if you had a chance given all the other stuff you've been doing with pendragon but are there any of the games that you've been looking at recently anything you're interested in or been playing or eager to try out 
Oh yeah, gosh. I mean, I'm not running a lot of Pendragon these days uh, just because I was running a lot of it for like two years. So right. yeah, <laughs> but let's see at the moment I am running an old school essentials game. I am running a Hunter the Vigil game as well. And um, I'm also getting ready to self-publish a, a game I've worked on with a friend called Action International, which is sort of our, our ode to 80s martial arts and action films and whatnot. So once that's ready, I'll be blasting it out every everywhere I can, you know. <laughs> cool. I, I guess there's, there's sort of two kinds of designers that we've discovered through talking to people. There's some that just kind of focus purely on the games, but it sounds like you've got a much broader base here. I mean, I presume you find that that helps you with your own design and your work, right? By looking at what other people have done and trying it out, that gives you more scope for ideas or gives you something to noodle on and, and maybe tweak for your own use, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's just how I've always been. I've always been a magpie, the games. Um, but but yeah, oh, you know, I think my next my next actual credited publication for Chaosium is actually going to be for 7C because I contributed on their next book called Land of a Thousand Nations. So um, I think I might be the only designer at Chaosium who's written for all four of their major lines thus far. So that's my little my little badge that I get to wear. I should definitely get a badge for that as some special shirt or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> I forget that Chaosium do 7C, to be honest. I don't know why I should forget that. That's, um, that's a great property to write for, I imagine. Oh, yeah, it was tons of fun. Mm. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, I got I got to write the chapter on the one... The one uh, sort of Thean, which is the European, you know, colony that's in this new world setting. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it was sort of based on Salem and Boston and, you know, that sort of Puritan um, uh, colonial vibe. So it was nice. tons of fun. I got got to research the Wampanoags and work those in. And it was great. Did you get any chance to go to conventions with her? I'm just thinking like Gen Cons now, but there's there's all kinds of other events. Do you, do you think they're going to let you out of your, your games locker at some point, let you face the public? <laughs> you know, I went to Chaosium Con uh, in 2022, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and I think that's kind of where the company is 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 looking to send us creatives now is to Chaosium right, Con gotcha. rather than Gen Con. Next year, I'm hoping to get to Necronomicon because I've never been there. Nice. Uh, and um, that's been a, a long time goal of mine. So yeah, those are kind of the two that I get to where, where I am, part of the country I am. Just there's not a lot of like local conventions I can drive to, you know, and so it's always a big production for me. I have to get the airfare and switch flights and, you know, be in, traveling for eight, nine hours to get wherever I need to be. You know, So it's just tend to not do that as often, but actually I think there's one at the, I could probably drive to called uh, Genghis Khan in Denver. That's going to be next February. So I'll probably hit that one up too. Yeah. I keep forgetting because we're in Europe. I'm, I'm heading, well, Ben's coming as well this mm-hmm. time. I'm going to the Kraken in Germany in a couple of weeks. Well, I'll be running yeah. some Pendragon if anybody's coming. Yeah, that, and that's you know an hour and a half flight to Berlin, and then an hour or two of a train over there. <laughs> I've traveled three three countries together in uh, <laughs> yeah, a very short time. But well, maybe we'll see you at some point. Maybe we'll get you over to the crack in the or something, and we'll we'll manage to meet up and share some mead or whatever it is that night. Yes. The blood of their enemies, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, well, yeah, <laughs> certain knights. That's the, that's the Saxon. Yes. That's why we have Saxons on the character sheet. Yes. Sa- Saxon knights. Upcoming supplement. <laughs> Old habits. Brilliant. Well, it's been great to have you back on our notes. We're, we're about time. So thanks very much for, for joining us once again. It's been great to hear about the, the new edition and uh, get us all excited for Pendragon again. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me back. And, and hopefully now with, with more regular releases, you'll have an excuse to uh, invite me back around. <laughs> 
<laughs> cool. Thanks, David. Thanks, all. And thanks very much to our patrons. Everyone who supports us, it might be a dollar, it might be somebody who just shares us on social media, on Twitter or Blue Sky or wherever it is. If you can let people know about the cast and encourage them to listen, it all helps with the algorithms and paying the internet man his fees. So thanks to your listeners as well. Until next time, bye-bye.